1: Hi everyone, Ione here, and I'm so excited to be presenting the second part of our brand new limited podcast series exploring modern identity. Made in collaboration with Monkey, The Skin You're In explores what it means to be alive today and the biggest issues affecting our generation. This is the second part of our two-part live series, and we sat down in Monkey's London Carnaby Street store to discuss coming back together, the changes post-lockdown, and creativity during this weird time. I am joined today by Maggie Matic and Kieran Yates. The former is a writer and researcher and the latter is an amazing journalist and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Enjoy! Hello, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much everyone for coming. I'm Ioni, if anyone doesn't know, I run Polyester and and I'm so excited to be here today with Maggie Matic and Kieran Yates.
2: Would you like to introduce yourselves, Kieran, first? Yeah, my name's Kieran Yates, uh, and I'm a journalist and polyester and Ioni fan. And? And uh, uh, and, uh, I'm writing a book at the moment, so please buy it when it comes out. (laughs) I'm Maggie Matic, also a polyester
0: and Ioni mega fan. I am a writer, curator and researcher, and that's me.
1: So I wanted to start, the theme is kind of like coming back together, but it feels as if that might not last for very long. So I'm happy to be with you all now, (laughs) not to jinx anything, but I'd love to know kind of like how you both fared during lockdown in terms of like creativity and community, especially as like people, I met you both like in real life before on the internet. So it's weird to think like now we're not doing stuff like that as much. So It's like, would I have ever met you? Who can say? (laughs)
0: I think it's hard because I think you do meet people online but you can take your creative collaborations to the next level when you can then take that you know in person but at the same time I think one of the good things and I know we've said it and said it said it to death but one of the amazing things about the pandemic with all the suffering that came with it the one positive was that it did allow us to figure out ways to actually harness that creative power without being able to connect and see each other IRL, you know. And um, I work a lot with researchers and artists and when all of the archives and libraries and art institutions shut, we really had to think of ways to take programs online. And that had been something that we'd been talking about doing a lot in the arts, but I hadn't really been forced to find really innovative ways of doing it. I don't think we really got there Hmm. You know, we could have pushed it further, and I think we will. I think there's still time for that. and I hope there's you know still a drive to do that. But yeah, I, I think that was one of the the positive things. you know, I started a lot of like coffee mornings and reading groups with researchers and things that felt really, really productive. and you can connect with researchers from around the world, which before I was maybe not as proactive about doing. So I think it had its benefits as well as its drawbacks, obviously. Hmm
2: i think it I think it also gave us an opportunity like if probably i mean for most of us pre pandemic we probably had a sense of how aggressive the pace of capitalism is and sort of being productive at sort of living within the, that structure, and so even though I thought in the there were kind of like the first few months just like dickheads on the internet being like Shakespeare wrote uh, King Lear in a pandemic <laughs> you know that kind of like <laughs> what an excellent time for us to all produce madly because we're at home and I think that actually what was probably always going to happen was that there was this there's been a lot of new conversations about the reverence of rest and the way in which we really create communities of care uh, and I think that that sort of Audre Lord idea of um caring for ourselves as acts of political warfare became such like became for me anyway and, and for some of my friends the narrative so then it almost liberated me personally to be able to write outside of this idea that we, I have to be like producing producing and you know now I'm at home and you know it's 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 the perfect time you know all those all that kind of thing and so um I guess my hope is and I don't know if you guys have felt this but like that it's it's kind of given me some time to really think deeply about community, if, whether that's neighbourhood or online, and the way that you can engage with that when you're resting on your own terms.
1: I think that's so interesting, like, especially because, well, actually, Maggie, you're not a freelancer, but we're both freelancers. And I've heard, like, so many, well, to me, they're horror stories, maybe other people don't think so, of like, oh, I have to go back to the office, but we got rid of the office. So now I'm working from a co-working space that I have to move around Or I have to go to a soho house. Like, it's in their contract. They have to go sit in a private members club for a day and work on their laptop. Like, and (laughs) honestly, how? My point being is that it feels like, you know, like the patriarchal overlord powers that be are really desperate for us to get back to the way things were before. Like, go to the office, do this. Like, let's have all these pointless meetings in real life when Zoom meetings were amazing. Like, I never want to get rid of them. And now people are desperate to meet you in real life. Why? I don't don't need to have a coffee with someone I don't know, like, we can do that on Zoom, it's amazing, it's a revelation. Do you think that's, like, part of, like, I wonder why we're so desperate to get back to that when we did take such a long period of being, like, we need to rest, like, we need to, you know, recalibrate what working is or work-life balance or whatever. Do you think it's just, like, a scaredness, like, of capitalism collapsing or do you think there's maybe like another reason as well
2: i think a lot of that is maintaining the structural order because that is the way in which society has been designed so by design we feel the urgency to return to work but well, not us we're freelancers <laughs> but, but i hear like other people um but it, you know it's like it, it's given us an opportunity we know that the way that the current work day the way that time is organized is based on the sort of industrial revolution workforce of a nine to five day, which just doesn't exist in the same way anymore. So it feels like this 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 is the right time to have conversations about temporality in relation to work and in relation to ourselves because that just that doesn't work. That's, you know, that doesn't work for women entering the workforce or, you know, lots of different kinds of people who enter the labor force at large. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this kind of like sort of like maniacal like urgency to return to like the 9 to 5 work day of the industrial revolution to me is like mad like you know but like I you know I don't want I don't I don't I don't want to engage with that and that, that you know I recognize that's a privilege too but I think we must resist it
0: <laughs> yeah totally couldn't agree more i mean it yeah i, I just to echo that i think it is just a comfort, I think people find a sense of comfort in that you know neoliberal capitalist regime of getting up and going to work, feeling productive like you've done you've been a good agent of capitalism <laughs> for the day and you can go home. I feel it hugely, I'm sure we all do like that massive sense of guilt for resting or like shame for for needing rest or time and respite. I' try and fight that all the time. I think we all do because it's so you know entrenched and it's obviously like a testament to you know, how pervasive like capitalist realism is. We can't see any way out. We just think that this is how things have to be and maybe we're afraid of what the alternative would be. Um, But yeah, you're so right in terms of how it's revolutionized, how we view our day, our spaces, our bodies in in good and bad ways. You know, I think we're now more fearful of social situations and, and that's, you know, obviously a drawback. But yeah, for sure, I think it's just... That we're sort of creatures of comfort. We're like little ants, and we like following the routes that we used to following.
2: Yeah, when you've been doing it for a long time, you you, you kind of recognise how much you accept that. Yeah. I love that. Though I love those stories, sort of like early 18th century stories of people from the north of England coming to London to resist time, to resist the the idea of a national time because obviously London had London time. And there Wait, were, what is London time? So like like as as in GMT. So there was a a kind of, there was daylight savings time in the north that was based on the way that farmers Mm -hmm. uh, organized their day. And then there was this idea of like, you know, because of the factories in London, they roll it out. But there were all these like protests and people came and they were destroying clocks in the streets. And they were like, fuck this. Like, we're not accepting this. (laughs) We're not accepting this. And like, yeah, there's like, you know, sort of archives of people like taking hammers to watches and whatever. But the point is, is that like, you know, when there's an opportunity to challenge, you suddenly feel like, yeah, why why am I accepting this this reality.
0: Yeah, and like you were saying about the nine to five work week, like that was designed at a time when society was so vastly different from how it is now. It actually really doesn't work for us at all, you know, because most members of a nuclear family will go out and work, whereas it's not like one breadwinner and everyone else can stay at home doing the housework or whatever. It's just a system that is very outdated. And it's a shame because this was a bit of an opportunity for us to reassess that, and I don't know if we have.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting kind of seeing, like, this week, the um, Netflix walks out, walkouts in response to their comments of the Dave Chappelle stand-up special. Is that what be- Yeah, I don't watch stand-up comedy. <laughs> um, and, like, kind of seeing these American workers, like, walk out. It feels like something we're quite resistant to in the UK protest, especially over the last, like... Hmm, decade maybe like I remember going to the student protests and stuff like that and then I feel like now do you think we're ambivalent to, like politics at the yeah. moment because it's definitely like a degree to which even like I've switched off to things and like we were saying before Kieran like just acceptance that everything is awful obviously people can do that to very varying degrees like dependent on their privilege but it feels so impenetrable to try and look at things on a government level at the moment and is it about focusing more inwards to like communities of care like you mentioned or should we still be like still be or should we start
2: pushing back like more aggressively I feel like I think it's that's interesting that kind of defining moment of I guess the war in Iraq and the student protests as like ostensibly for like for me certainly the biggest national examples of a protest which didn't seem to work mm. and then the sort of over, overwhelming narrative being like oh well if this doesn't work then how how do you engage right and
1: I remember going to the um whatever the like stop brexit ones and it was just like middle-class families with their like labradoodles <laughs> and Please. it's just so depressing nice day <laughs> Please <laughs> just program. stop <laughs> it. but like
2: yeah i've sort of submitted to political hell in that i i you know i i find in terms of party politics i, I find it difficult to see how the uk will vote in a labor government maybe in the next 10 years and that's so depressing to me that you know i think that the only response actually is to sort of yeah build those networks and communities and try and mobilize within sort of geographical neighborhood community that are like literally the people in your mutual aid group chat even though mine's descended into like middle (laughs) class hell as well (laughs) Um, loads of requests for like kale and risotto but also like yeah just whatever communities we find ourselves a part of that we were that we chose or that we were born into yeah Um,
0: because I think that was you know that emphasis on community came about through this like um, yeah almost the the collapse and closure of those you know uh, of the economy i suppose (laughs) as we like as we know it um and uh, the capitalist wheel we all had to stop you know shops closed bars closed the you know the world closed down Mm -hmm. and i think through that we started to see you know through the neoliberal lie that you just have to work as an individual just consistently and relentlessly in order to have a happy you know existence and a and a and and to survive and then we actually saw oh no actually that's really not true I need the person next door and they need me and we can actually form these networks but I think the pandemic was weird in the sense that we were sort of more locked into like our government in a weird way that I think we've never experienced Mm -hmm. before like literally put you know having a, a presentation every evening with slides and seeing them speak to you and about you and what we should, taking taking orders of like what, how we should behave and move and things. But then at the same time, just being completely failed, not receiving the really basic support that so many people needed. Mm-hmm. So it was this, I, and I think that's gonna, you know, further that ambivalence because here's these people that are supposed to be serving us and they're absolutely, you know, failing which we know as as people who don't ascribe to the politics of the party that that govern, but yeah um
2: and, and part of the part of that I thought the response that was useful for me was that it it gave you such an active fury because you could see the sharp end of austerity and its murderous regime as opposed to just like feeling so sad you're in it. It was like I was just you know I felt that that energy of rage that kind of- pr- was able to propel me forward, and so. I feel like sometimes that can be something useful to hold on to, to be like we, you know, this is this is more than mismanagement. This is like, a, like a true a true regime that is murdering people. And also, I found like sometimes the global perspective was useful. I'm not sure if you felt the same, but even now, this morning, I got um, I get a New York Times alert to my phone, and it was like the UK has got the worst cases in, in the world like, it's terrible like, are they okay how are they living like it's oh my god w- just walking around <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm doing not thing. checking the news yeah. no but it's you know i think that you know that stuff as well like taking yourself out of your moment and and recognizing the extent to which you're failed on every level has been helpful
1: it's so interesting as well because it really showed just how like much the government can help economically if they need to like furlough you know stopping evictions increasing universal credit like i remember speaking to olivia who co-hosts with me and it's just like oh my god now we just know money is fake how will it ever go back but it's just sprung back people are so easy to accept that like no well they helped us for a bit like fine you know like they so can raise weird. our taxes yeah, yeah okay exactly i know there's the whole like you need to pay. why do we need to pay for it in the end I know you can't print more money, but, like, who cares? We're in, like, just so much debt. Like, you just keep going into debt. What are they going to do? <laughs> um, anyway. I only get the out. <laughs> <laughs> credit card after credit card, handing them out. Um, I also think it's really interesting that basically all of this happened and we had to be, like, very online. Like, even if you weren't, you were forced to be somehow. And the fact that online breeds such like rampant individualism and like just like you know all about the individual which I don't think is all bad like you know it's not evil or anything but it's interesting that we had to like consider communities while operating in spaces that are kind of
2: anti-community at their core how did you both find that? I find that kind of like relentless kind of commodification of, of kind of influencer culture let's say or like some very specific cultures that exist online like like, like beyond egregious, like sinister. You know, the sort of this kind of. I mean, I know it's a simple analogy to make, but the idea of like, you know, getting thing, getting people to buy things that you haven't bought for yourself, or you know, that kind of that that kind of like sponcon matrix of doom. I found that very difficult because it felt very very at odds with sort of the way in which the world is unfolding in front of you. In the same way that sometimes you'd get like the Guardian Weekend. And the distance between like the the cover, which was like the the news stories, and then like the, the Saturday weekend, which was like, <laughs> hey, let's uh, you know, let's do a whole interior design and buy this like sofa and you know have this like suit for eight hundred pounds. It was just like there was you know these yeah. kind of like you're just like, what planet are you living on? That mm. is like, that I, I don't understand you. But um, I think I think like for every one of those, there's like a sort of young activist who is like using the internet in this most sort of like didactic way and doing like, you know, real grassroots resource sharing and, you know, meme pages, you know, with activism have their place for kind of an entry-level understanding. And I think that I, I kind of actually feel inspired by the way that some... Um, kind of some Gen Z users are like using the internet and and challenging things like privacy and and challenging the kind of proliferation of tech in our everyday life. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from that. And Generation Alpha, actually, the way in which they're like telling their parents to like stop putting their fucking faces on Facebook. So, <laughs> I think there's like, something to be learned there.
0: Yeah, I think when we talk about the internet, we tend to focus on like how it how the internet aids us making society level macro level change like big shifts in the world and that of course is a really significant and important discussion but I think and I think at that level it's probably not doing as much benefit as it Mm -hmm. is maybe harm but you know questionable um but I think I'm maybe more interested in those like small individual or community level interactions that can find a home online in like closed groups or forums even group chats like the polyester dollhouse Mm. group chat like those spaces I think are actually where more productive work can get done and information can be shared you know agendas can be moved on and pushed on a little bit more and then I do think that can have like a maybe a macro level like a big society level shift but for me, I I think we don't talk about that enough, like even just supporting your friend, you know, one-on-one or like, I don't know, trans people sharing information about doctors or healthcare providers that they've experienced that are good or bad. I think those things are, that I, I feel those things are still significant. We don't talk about those enough. And so when I think about online, particularly through the pandemic, I think, I think that's where more productive work happened, maybe.
2: I also quite like the way in which a lot of, sort of creatives or writers or journalists or artists or whoever online sometimes they, they can use their platform as a conduit to talk about social justice issues but it's also a place where they're like cool and sexy and like we'll do like you I know it, yeah. you know and there's a kind of like there's nuance to that it's like oh I like the music you're wearing and I like this and it's not like hi I'm a housing activist or whatever it's mm-hmm. like oh I'm a fully realized person and you know part of that is hypocrisy and part of that is looking sexy and part of that is doing a full beat and you know I think that that's like it's like it feels like a simple point but actually i feel like the sort of hyper branding of our identity that we've had to like live through over the last 10 years has made it quite difficult for people to transcend that you I know agree. So, yeah you know I, the sort of yeah identity politics has bent people into shape so much that now people are taking a breath and being like i care about this also i'm wearing expensive trainers
1: that's what i was gonna say like i was speaking to uh, a journalist a couple of weeks ago and they were like oh i need to like get more followers on Instagram or whatever. So I can like, if I do this, then I can sell this and like books or whatever. And they were like, Oh, but the only way to do that is to like post sexy pics. And I was like, yeah, do it then. Like, <laughs> why wouldn't you just do it? And they were like, Oh, it's annoying. And I was like, Well, I do it. Do you find me annoying? They're like, No, I was like, exactly. So just do it. Like, <laughs> I mean, they're probably lying to me, but still it like doesn't matter. Is this how you're going to single-handedly <laughs> save journalism? Exactly. By telling <laughs> everyone to out. post their tits on the internet. Um, As practices. but I do think like the pandemic did teach us to like try. And refined joy in online spaces because for so long, like, no matter your job, no matter what, it felt like such a grind, you know, like, you go on. Yeah, maybe part of that is having to, like, do your makeup to post a nice picture or maybe it's, like, making an infographic or maybe it's doing this. Whereas, like, as you were mentioning, like, through, like, the Dollhouse group chat and meeting people through there and then, like, having smaller online events with them or mentoring them, like, I felt like I kind of got that personal interaction. But with people... That I might not end up talking to or like wouldn't see so much if they were here. I do think it has taught us like the internet is obviously it's like very deep in many ways, but also like you should try and have fun on it because we're not trapped. Like it can feel like we're trapped in so many ways, but no one is forcing us to be online.
2: Hiring for your small business?
0: If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: I do think it's important to be, like, fairly uninhibited as long as, obviously, you're not, like, problematic or very bigoted or whatever. They should be very inhibited. <laughs> but if you're just posting shoe pictures <laughs> or selfies or your nice opinions, then
2: I don't see the problem.
0: Nice opinions only online.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a, that's about celebrating your agency, you know, mm-hmm. celebrating your agency to be like, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not going to just kind of... I don't know like you know post traumas online you know because there might be a sort of an interested brand or there's an opportunity to commodify but by saying actually this is on my own terms and I might turn off the comments or I might do that but you know I think that I think that that's I don't know if the conversation is changing or we're just having the conversation right now (laughs) 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 But, but either way that that feels like a sort of a more wholesome and holistic way to step into joy
1: yeah Maggie you did your PhD on like four wave feminism and that kind of like going into capitalism or the you were there on the quest of it kind of. What do you think would be different about your PhD if you're like starting it or in the middle of it now?
0: Um, well I started it six years ago or maybe seven years ago now so obviously so that was in 2015 I started it um, and I had the idea for it in 2014 where I feel it it still was just coming into like fashion you know it was like it was moving into those spaces of like becoming a buzzword in like branding and ad campaigns and things like that so yeah i kind of like followed that sort of journey through the four year period of doing my phd now i would probably be able to look more at the impact of that whereas i was kind of just actually charting what was happening um, I'd say something I would look at now that might be different is this really like individual like the branding of the individual Um, I feel like that was less of a thing when I started that people would build entire um, careers say like off of lucrative careers off like an activist stance and they would do it through they do it through social media so like activist influencer culture which i think now we're starting to like really di- uh, digest and dissect that that's wasn't I. as much <laughs> and slowly kill um but uh, but that wasn't as much of a thing back then i don't think so that's something i would probably want to look at because i think that's a really really um har- you know a harmful culture because obviously then it's taking it straight back into like a neoliberal capitalist. <gasps> framework which is obviously the antithesis to any kind of like you know feminist liberatory movement particularly an intersectionally feminist liberatory movement so i think that's a big thing that's that's maybe new or different from when i when i started out and i also don't even know if the term fourth wave feminism ever worked or if it was ever helpful what it really captured which is something i go into in my phd and i don't know if now we're in a new wave or we might be entering into well, do a you f- think we're wave. entering like post another post-feminist wave yeah possibly because um i don't know if it got eaten up and spat out and now people sort of feel like it's a bit trite to you know be be using some of that like you know feminist slogans or language i think they do and i think that's a shame because so many you know so much of that you know you you referenced like the audrey lord work around self-love that's such radical work mm-hmm. but i don't know if people now would just think about self-love de- discourse as oh i see that on t-shirts rather than going into the real theory of it um which is a shame and i think maybe that's like the post feminist sentiment that creeps that's back like in.
1: the job of capitalism though isn't it to neutralize the political so you can sell it basically ruin everything yeah
0: no not me i don't know
2: but it's but that's so interesting about the way in which you transcend the branding of an ideology and you know do you do that by creating uh visible alternatives or do you do that by resisting by just doing you know unglamorous administrative work that pushes through eventually and makes real change it's hard i think i've opted for the latter
0: so i i um I think through doing my research, it really put me off having a very visible activist practice that was channeled through like my social media. I still use my social media in like political ways, but um, I'd say my my true like whether I would call myself an activist or not is debatable. But it is through that administrative, you know, labor that I do in my job as a curator or as a researcher, you know, and, and maybe you feel you do that through, you know, your journal, journalism and ju- through your journaling <laughs> practice. <laughs> um,
2: My diary. Yeah.
0: But, you know, I think like that became a big focus for me because I, I, I saw that's where I could see tangible change that I was making rather than getting loads of likes on an infographic or something, which is also works for other things, I think.
2: But also sometimes as much as you try and like um, filter out sort of you know the, the sort of evil voices on the right or wherever sometimes they're useful in, in making you recalibrate and recognise why it's important because if it at any point felt gauche to be like ugh I'm a feminist t-shirt suddenly the proliferation of kind of you know turfs and the far right suddenly make you realize oh i do actually actively have to say that i'm in solidarity with like my trans siblings and like trans women and sex workers and women of color and you know all of those kinds of things because i can see they're actively attacked so you know even though i might be put in the same you know category as like you know a fluorescent like feminist babe t-shirt girl it's okay you know those things are okay sometimes but no I agree it it can be I think the whole thing like you're
0: saying that's the job of capitalism is it isn't it like to recuperate these phrases or these words how about we just don't let that happen and and I I think you know Mm -hmm. like that is you know feminism has a wonderful power of seeming to be able to do that like crop up again and it's annoying because we always feel like we're having to reinvent the wheel with it but it does persist and feel like a label that rears its head and still feels useful in some ways so yeah let's not you know completely disregard it but like you know there's amazing thinkers out there like yourselves you know, Lola Olafemi, who are really saying, no, this is a this is a word that's useful, it's a phrase that's useful, but this is what it looks like, not like this, or maybe like this a bit, but it shouldn't or it should, or you know.
2: I think I think also, um, it's important to recognise the archive. And I think like looking back on, you know, real radical feminist practice that has worked in terms of community organizing is really important. So because for every, you know, Simone de Beauvoir or Jermaine Greer that you think doesn't work. There is something, mm-hmm. you know, that that really does for us and that we usually can like, learn not from. Not as
1: known because they're not as like assimilated into the patriarchy,
2: right? Yeah, because they were sort of doing the work. I've been I've been writing recently about the um, the the Matrix feminist mm-hmm. design collective, who basically kind of tried to resist the way in which the built environment is so kind of patriarchal by by physical design, and as a result, made women across cities in the UK a lot more unsafe because you know things weren't well lit or you know um they were only designed for able-bodied people that kind of thing and one of the things in the 80s that some women did in Tower Hamlets is that they white uh, women architects took sort of groups of South Asian women on brick picnics or bricknicks where they would just be like listen we want to empower you with a language um to kind of Um, engage and think about like what we're going to build for you so we want to build women's resource centers you know take like brick rubbings and we're going to walk around and this is what they look like and you can have a say and we can share our knowledge and they would do these little things once a month and then sort of at the end of some of the projects women felt like they were able to say oh actually this is what I want to do this Mm -hmm. is how I want it to look this is you know I, I have a bit of the language this is the kind of brick work that I want to create this center and it's like all those all those little things make you feel like, oh, okay, no, it's all right. It's not like everything before now has been like hellish and right. white, you know? And I think yeah. that, that makes me feel better about it.
1: Yeah, I think we're like concealed from so much of history because it's not just like the main story, if you know what I mean, that we're told, mm-hmm. but there's so much more out there. And like, even in our current moment, there's so much more out there, like we focus so much on the infographics or whatever, but... I suppose uh myself included, a bit of that energy could be rerouted into looking for like things I do relate to more, if that makes sense. Find good
0: examples as well as bad examples, yeah. I guess, is what we're saying. And there's so many there's so many out there. Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: So would anyone like to ask a question? Gina has a microphone. Or maybe she doesn't yet, but she will soon. <laughs> Who wanted it? Oh. <laughs>
2: This makes me feel like only polyester will save us.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: because you were talking about the fourth wave of feminism, I have to
1: ask Maggie and Kieran and Ione, how useful do you think the terminology of the, like the wave ideology when it comes to feminism? Like, how useful do you think it is? A lot. I recently read Lola Lufemi's book where she kind of mentioned about how like, like maybe it's not as useful as we think it is, especially since like a lot of the women who were like fighting for the abolition of slavery aren't really included in the wave ideology so I was wondering what do you think if you think it's useful for us to keep labeling feminism in these waves
0: yeah big question (laughs) I don't know but I mean as a linguistic tool it's kind of helpful to label certain I guess key moments in feminist history but in terms of really capturing ideologies I I don't think it it works terribly well like feminism is much more messy than you know waves I think there's so much that 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 cross pollinates each wave it's i i think i can't remember who it is oh but but there's a there's a feminist theorist who uses the the metaphor of a cat's cradle rather than waves but yeah i mean it's like helpful to help us organize a, a very messy and complex history but over and above that it does fail us a lot and and in terms of how we define those waves when you actually try it's very very difficult there's ideas from the second wave that are in the third and fourth and then even you know yeah and as you say so many people omitted from that who wouldn't have ascribed to the label feminist but were doing really revolutionary work to liberate you know women transnationally so it's a term I try and avoid where I can but you know there are certain uses for it that are a bit helpful I don't know what do you think?
2: I think it can be a useful way of organizing. But I also think that, you know, journalists historically and the media sort of love genre classifications and they love very neat ways of making redundant, very complex and nuanced issues. And I think that this is a good example of that. And so I think in the way, I mean, speaking as a writer and a journalist who kind of, you know, will use this kind of terminology as a reference point. I just think that it's our responsibility that if we are doing that, then we sort of counteract that with with what the other stuff that we know like we know that certain terms like even bame or whatever don't really work for us and so it's our responsibility to make that point all the time I think
1: yeah I think I agree with both of you and it's like also a good or useful tool for interrogation like why do we consider the pivotal moments of first second third and fourth wave to be the ones that they are if that makes sense and like why do certain things find themselves classified and other things are admitted and like to view it as this sort of thing and also I feel like we often don't view it as like an arc more just like there was this and then there's this and then there's this so we feel like each of them were very separate In instead like when you look more closely a lot of the same systems and ideas are just recycled each time so then it's like how do you break out of that for the future, like not even necessarily the classification, but just like the way of repeating. And that's about all I have to say on (laughs) that.
0: It's a great question though. And I think like you could have a whole evening discussing that. Maybe we should sometime. (laughs) Maybe we should do it.
1: Thank you guys.
0: Um, I really like the opinions that you guys shared across social media to activism, to all sorts of things that we kind of witnessed over the past year. And obviously recently we witnessed a time where both Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram went down for a bit and we thought, oh my gosh, the world was gonna end, but came back like after a few hours. Um and I was kind of thinking throughout this talk, um, over time, do you think social media would be forever or do you think that there'll be a time when we're gonna go back to I guess, you know, reading the papers or I guess living a life without social media. And obviously it's such a good tool, again, within activism and such and so many other things. But do you think that social media is forever? Um, I think it should be
1: because, like as Maggie kind of mentioned at the beginning of this panel, like over the pandemic, so many like disabled and chronically ill people and people that like can't necessarily or aren't able to necessarily like contribute to certain situations or whatever like it opened up a lot and I think we need to try and view social media as like expansive and not limiting because in like the timeline of history it's still so new and it's already so bad (laughs) like there's so many bad things about it like who owns it the way it is restrictive and limits us and censors people and you know does all these things it's like controlling the governments like it seems impossible already to penetrate those systems, but like there must be ways. It's a shame, just you know, like speaking for myself and these two here, like we're not coders, so we can't solve the problems ourselves today. But yeah. if anyone is a coder or but, an investor,
2: then we'll make a new social media, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and something else in Bitcoin. I think, I think, like those kind of questions are really questions about um, accessing the radical imagination, you know, really, it's about reimagining what a world could be like with you know new and creative approaches and ethical approaches to social media i think that it should exist but th- there is absolutely no way that it can sustain itself with existing existing in its its current form so all of the kind of conversations that we have across creative worlds and media and tech and politics i think that then we have to understand those connective threads because that is going to take us to a place where you know the sort of these subsequent generations are not gonna sort of suffer. Although, as I'm saying that, I'm like, no, that maybe influences or just you know, they, they'll survive the nuclear attack. <laughs>
0: Honestly, sometimes it does feel like that, though. Maggie's praying that Molly May does <laughs> listen. We stand Molly May in this
2: house, okay, and Stacey Solomon, national hero. Oh my god, yeah, I so like
0: much. My... I think it's such an interesting question and I was speaking to a friend about it recently because we were speaking about how wholesome, I don't know if it technically is social media, but like how wholesome it all was when we just started out. Like we were talking about Pixo and... Wholesome, but quite bad, Maggie. Like you could get nonced within five
1: minutes. Yeah, (laughs)
0: very true, very true. But like at MySpace and how there was more of a focus on like music or writing like I remember I used to publish horrendous poetry on like (laughs) pixel or whatever but like I think maybe now there's like this uh this shift to like very image-based you know visual culture on social media I think that that has a lot to answer for and I think we that might be what we reject and move away from like I actually don't even know if we might get to a point where like legislation is brought in against like I don't know photo editing or what can and can't be shared like we're more heavily censored and then we have to go back to like sharing Kate Nash songs on <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Sorry, not uh, but you know like I don't know if the the visual focus of social media might be something that we move away from slightly I kind of hope so but
2: yeah I certainly think it will it will continue but it might just look very different I think also there are moments of human respite of making and like you know we've seen that with like zine booms and publishing booms sort of globally and the way that that works and the way that people you know want to crochet and make and the, and those things and I'm sure you know that in your respective worlds that you know that's that's always a driver and you know perhaps there's something about sort of encouraging those waves to to be able to maintain themselves when they do happen because often, as we know with publishing, it's like, there'll be a boom, but it's not that everybody's not interested, it's that the resource doesn't mean that they can continue, so.
1: Thank you for your question. Thank you. Anyone else? Hello.
0: Um, Just going back to the beginning when we were talking about um, the relationship between productivity and rest and having to recalibrate that over the past 18 months to years, um, if it's not too personal, I'd like to know individually, like, how your relationships with rest and productivity have
1: changed for the better and or for the worse and what you're hoping to
2: kind of take with you now that things are, you know, the grind is starting to grind again. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the grind is grinding already. (laughs) And um, I think for me personally, there's like, you know, part, part of my personal respite comes from just, you know, like researching and reading and talking to my mum. And so part of me is like, oh, you know, there's an ethnic sleep gap and there's a gender sleep gap. And, you know, women of colour, you know, we, we sleep less, we rest less, you know, we work night shifts, that, that kind of thing. And my mum, you know, my mum's always been a cleaner and I chat to her and, you know, sometimes it makes me feel guilty. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer, you know, I'm, I've, I have like, you know, what is like a dream job for me and you know i feel like i you know i have felt like i haven't been able because i'm so i'm not entitled to say oh i'm experiencing something that m- requires rest and i think that actually a sort of collective narrative about that has has let me be a bit more kind to myself and been like it's okay you don't literally have to be like bleeding from your eyes on the couch to be like maybe i need to lie down and i think that that's like i think that that's helpful and yeah so like Dancing and like allowing myself to just like do those things and be like, oh, okay, you know, and res- and like research shows I think mean, it takes like up to three months to recover from burnout. You know, it's like these things we have to approach it with reverence. You know, that's that's the only way that you can move through it. So, yeah, I've tried to do that and like, yeah, I listen to Ione and I'm like, <laughs> a podcaster like, you know I like just you know those sorts of things you like find your network of people that calm you down and enable you to step into joy and read a little bit and that's helped me I think I mean having a
0: slightly different experience of working like a nine to five um one thing I've found really helpful is not feeling that sense of like going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, I suppose that being tethered to like an eight hour working day that I can actually be as productive in four hours as I am in eight hours sometimes, particularly, you know, if I'm having a good, you know, day of flowing through my tasks or whatever. Um, But also that like being able to work from home or work flexibly has allowed me to actually do really basic things for myself that, I wasn't doing before like cooking a nice meal in the evening that nourishes my soul or like doing an hour of exercise or listening to an hour of something or taking the dogs out you know like things that I didn't have time for because I'd leave at eight and get home at eight you know so I think that's been a massive thing that I'm going to really really try and protect especially as someone who lives with a chronic mental illness like that that was just absolutely decimating me and I just didn't really see you know how how much and I think the the good thing that I've noticed through I mean I work in the arts but and and maybe it's unique to that sector but that does feel like there's more of a understanding that we can work productively and flexibly um and so I'm gonna really really try and safeguard that because it's been uh, a bit of a, a revolution for me and I think it's so important that we we all do that even if you're freelance you know making time for that is so important
2: can I just quickly say as well, on the on the last podcast that we did together, one of the things that you said, which really stayed with me, because I was I was saying, oh, it's so annoying that I've like, writing as my hobby and I've like monetized it. And like, you were like, <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to monetize all your hobbies. Like, you can have other hobbies. And it was like, oh, yes. We're, we're kind of we're living in a moment where it feels like, oh, I just, you know, I just joined this like dance workshop and I'm going to write a piece about it for Refinery29 or whatever. And I think that, that those kind of like simple things, that simple thing is like it's just really helped and so doing
0: things for no reason yes like yes. i feel like I, I i used to feel like everything had to have a reason or yes. i'd have an idea and i'd be like oh i love that maybe i could do a zine about that and it's like no just just do that enjoy <laughs> it chill out you don't always have to be you know making it some big project yeah.
1: <laughs> You know, like, I actually think I'm worse now (laughs) than I was before. (laughs) Um, I write about this, like, a lot in my book and, like, bed and rest and being someone that has to spend a lot of time in bed and a lot of time resting. But I feel like it's, like, what you're saying about, like, the grind grinding, it's, like, now it's, like, well, how much time do we have left? I should just do everything now because then what if I could do nothing for so long again? And that's obviously a very, very unhealthy attitude. (laughs) But I do hope, like, this idea of rest has permeated, like, culture in a wider way. And as I touched on in the beginning, I worry that it's just going to like ping back and everyone's going to be like, you know, burnt out, even though we are already burnt out like emotionally. But then also with work, it would just be like too much. Um, But Karen's note is nicer to end on because that was very positive. (laughs) 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 Um, My note was shut up about the things you like. mine was everything is bad (laughs) Um, so let's stop there Um, thank you all so much everyone thank you so much and thank you to Maggie and Karen. thank you both for joining me and thank you for everyone that came to the live recordings it was so much fun and thank you to Phil Florist who did an amazing workshop with us afterwards and also Ace and Freak for providing drinks we will be back on monday with another sleepover club episode and i can't wait to see you then but for now thank you again to monkey for partnering with us on this podcast it's so much fun to do thank you to olivia for editing this episode thank you to gina and gina and grace and halima and charlotte and eden and clarissa bye